Folks, a lot of what I share in here, you can buy a copy of this book, Howard Hendricks and his son, William Hendricks, Living by the Book. Who has that? Okay. Have you found it helpful? Very helpful. So some of what I'm going through in here can be read in more detail uh, in that book. Uh, Let's get started. Somebody open us tonight in a word of prayer. Who would do that? Anybody? Volunteer. Rick? Amen. Uh, Marlene, I was about to say you asked for this last week and now you're not here tonight, but I saw you are here. So uh, just real quick, the front and back only. Uh, She had asked because a couple of weeks ago some of them were out and they just wanted to know if I would bring a handout tonight of what we had covered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I had mentioned going out and buying a good study Bible, and I gave you some of the uh, best sellers there, and I really don't think you'd go wrong with with any of those listed there. Uh, Does everybody have, most in here have probably at least one of these? Okay, very good. Uh, Also, Bible apps, you know, I've got quite a number of these on my iPad. I've got hard copies of them, but I've got them on my iPad too. So if I go on vacation or something, if I have my iPad with me, I've got, oh, there's probably four or five of these I have on my iPad. Okay? Uh, I talked about an exhaustive concordance, the difference between that and the concordance at the back of your Bible. An exhaustive concordance will give every occurrence of that word that you're looking for, whereas the concordance in the back of your Bible just gives a sampling of places where that, where that word is found. Uh, I told you to get a good Bible dictionary. I've given you an example of one, underline the Holman. Uh, A good one or two volume commentary. I gave you a couple of of examples there. And then... And then I also asked you to uh, list out the the expositions. Warren Warren Wearsby, the B series. Uh, That's on a layman's level. Probably the best combination between getting some of the more technical stuff but put in layman's terms would be John MacArthur's uh, New Testament expositions. He kind of covers a good balance between giving you some of the material, although he still kind of stays on the light side, but he'll give you some of the fruits of more detailed study in more of the analytical commentaries, but then he'll put it in language for laymen to understand. So the expositions by John MacArthur, and then also uh, James Montgomery Boyce. And then I've listed there for you some uh, computer programs, and then a word study book, a good Bible atlas, like the ESV Bible atlas, and the Holman Bible atlas. I have both of those. And either one of them is, is superb. Um, number seven, I just pointed out, investing in a library. It's not too much to expect that, that God's people would invest in some study tools. Especially when you stop and think about some of the other items that you probably uh, invest in. Anything more on that before I move on? Because since I brought it to you in print tonight, I, I didn't want to spend an enormous amount of time on that. Okay, certainly that's another good. Yes. 
the, the blue letter Bible. That's an, does anybody else use that one in here? Anybody? Okay. Excuse me, I'm drinking some water tonight. I, I don't know. I feel kind of puny on my stomach tonight. Forgive me. So I'm just, just not, not feeling great tonight. Being on the road the past two days, taking our daughter and grandson back, I don't know if I picked up on something on the road, eating or what. Just No, didn't eat at Taco Bell. Just don't feel good. Just don't feel good tonight. But anyway, uh, so pardon me if I'm drinking while I'm trying to hmm, ease my stomach tonight. But anyway, uh, any, anything else? Jim? The, the, the maps and charts and all by Rose Publishing are, are very good. Yes. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. Very good. So the rose, blue letter. Anything else before we move on? One more slipping in back there for you. You took them both. Okay. Well, uh, just uh, take that home and look over it. And I would encourage you to acquire some of these resources. I think that will help you a great deal in your study of the Scripture. Now, last week, you'll recall last week, we were talking about developing our observation skills. And if you were here last week, what was the, what was the passage that we looked at? Acts 1, verses 7 and 8. Just two verses. And in the teams, uh, most of you came up with 18, 19, 20 different things. When you slowed down enough, when you slowed down enough to observe what was in those verses, it was amazing what you pick up on, right? When you just take time to observe and write down your observations. See, most of us read too much and reflect too little. We don't think about what we're reading in the Bible. We don't take time to slow down and pause and look at the words, the phrases, the individual verses. And and we need to do that. Folks, if we do not get the observation step right, then the other two main steps, interpretation and application, we're going to be off on those. And it goes back to not getting observation right. And so that little exercise we did last week was to help us uh, build our observation skills. Now, what you did last week with two verses, try to do that with a passage that you're studying. Try to do that if you're teaching a chapter in the Bible. Before you teach it, do that with a chapter. Do it with an entire book. You're going to have a lot of material there in print or on your word processor. But it's worth it. 
Go through a book of the Bible and do that observation step. Now, I want you to remember our chapter divisions were not added until approximately 1,200 years after the New Testament was completed. So chapter divisions are not always perfect. How many times have you been hearing a Bible teacher on the radio or a preacher and say, you know what, it's kind of unfortunate that the chapter division was put here. Because sometimes the chapter division will be in the middle of the thoughts. But despite that, on occasion, chapter divisions are very, very helpful, aren't they? Very helpful. Uh, Because they help us to understand a unit of thought. A unit of thought. Now, you've heard me use the word before, uh, uh, the word pericope. P-E-R-I-P. P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, pericope. That's a unit of thought. Oftentimes in your Bible, it's, it's paragraph. It's a single unit of thought. Uh, you know, this morning, it, it, James 1, we looked at verses 1 to 8. That would be a pericope. Really, you, you technically need to say that pericope goes to the end of verse 12. I didn't look this morning at 9, 10... 11 and 12. But really it's 1 through 12 is that pericope. Pericope is a unit of thought. Okay? Okay? So that again, that exercise you did with Acts 1, 7, and 8, do that with each individual pericope that you study, unit of thought. You will be amazed if you will just take time to do that, how much things in that passage will jump out at you. We're not always good at seeing, are we? Maybe you've heard the little illustration, funny illustration about the scientist and the flea. Have you heard that? The scientist and the flea. A scientist was using the inductive method to observe the characteristics of a flea. Plucking a leg off of the flea, he ordered jump and nudged the flea and it jumped. Taking another leg off the flea, he nudged it again and said, jump, and it jumped. Well, he continued this process until he came to the sixth and the final leg. Now, by now the flea was having a little more difficulty jumping, but it was still moving around and trying a little bit, and it would budge itself slightly. Then he plucked that leg off. Then he said, jump, and he nudged it, and it didn't move. The scientist then made the following observation in his notebook. When you remove the legs from a flea, it loses its sense of hearing. (laughs) Now, I'd say that fellow wasn't too good at observation, was he? Now, let's review a little bit more, too, from last week. And I've I've written, again, because some of you asked for some of these things to to be in print, so you could take them with you. Uh, Complete a cursory observation. We mentioned reading through uh, the book of the Bible in one sitting, if possible. I would advise you to start with the short book of the Bible until you get used to it doing this and again just like you did last week with Acts record all of your observations and look at some of these uh, bullet points I gave you what are your first thoughts or impressions of the book what do you learn about the author usually you're going to find that in a New Testament book where in an epistle anyway right up front okay 
Who's the intended audience? Is it believers, non-believers, Jews, Gentiles? What was their situation? Your book introductions in your study Bible is going to help you immensely with this. Uh, what's the atmosphere of the book? What type of literature is it? Is it historical? Is it biographical? Is it poetical or wisdom literature? Is it a, a book of prophecy? Is it didactic like James teaching? Uh, epistle? Some combination thereof. You know, the book of Daniel is kind of split in two, isn't it? The first half of it is historical for the most part. The second half of it is prophetic with, with a pretty good little dose of ap apocalyptic mixed in, right? Uh, what are the key words of the book? I gave you a resource last week. I brought the book so you could see. Uh, Walk Through the Bible has published it. Uh, you can go on Amazon and order it. Talking Through the Bible by Bruce Wilkinson. And for each book of the Bible, he'll give you key words, key verses. He'll give you good outlines with each book, all of that. Uh, so what are the key words? What general subjects are covered in the book? What historical, religious, and cultural references can you find? What's the author's purpose or emphasis? Again, just about every introduction in a study Bible will tell you what the author's purpose was. What's the main theme of the book? Create a file on that, on that book of the Bible you're studying. Or if you're still old school, writing it down, buy you a separate notebook for it all. By the way, something I have not mentioned to you, a good, a good way once you get into a study of the Bible. One thing that always drives me crazy, I love writing in my Bibles. But one thing that always drives me crazy, they don't give you big enough margins. <laughs> You'll kill a lot of trees, but on your word processor, you can go online and find different versions of the Bible, you know, and cut and paste. And then, you know, copy it over into your word processor. Uh, in the book of James, five chapters, have you a three-ring punch it, have you an individual notebook on James. And what I've done I, I, on my word processor, draw the margins in from top to bottom and side to side, make big margins. You can even put bigger gaps between each verse, have lots and lots of room. So then as you're going through studying, and you've got lots of room to write, don't you? Lots of room to write. Um, I talked about creating an observation page or pages for each chapter of the Bible. Or, again, verse, depending on what you're studying. Let's say you're doing a chapter observations page. Put the book and chapter at the top of the page. Divide the page into categories, key persons, key events, key doctrines, main lessons emphasized or learned. Fill the page up. And then at the bottom of the page, save room where you can write a summary statement of that chapter and try to make, make it as descriptive as possible to do it justice, but short enough that you're not rewriting the whole chapter. Um, I've given you the example of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Chapter title, if you'll turn over to the back side, Chapter title, key verse, what do I see, who, what, when, where, how. Just those good reporter questions. Who's writing this, to whom is he writing. Major figures or personalities, is anything mentioned about their lives. What are they being commanded or instructed to do. If it's a large narrative section, are there some principles that I can learn. Uh, I find it helpful in literature like epistles, for example, to go through a whole passage and isolate main clauses. Now, obviously, you're going to need to be in uh, epistle or epistolary material to do this. It's, it's easier. And I'm going to give you an example of what I, what I mean by that. 
you know, a chapter might just seem overwhelming. But do you realize when you break it down into the main clause, there might be 17, 18 verses in that chapter. But when you break it down in the main clauses, there may only be four or five main clauses in that whole entire chapter. I've given you an example there of of what I like doing. And I, I do this on a word processor and I put things in bold. If I'm studying 1 Peter 5, for example, 6 through 11, I left justify all the main clauses. Now, this, it, it certainly requires that you know basic building blocks in English, right? Main clauses from dependent. If there's a, a dependent clause modifying the, that portion of the main clause that comes before the main clause, I put it above what it modifies and indent it three spaces from what it modifies if it comes after what it modifies I put it below it and indent three spaces I've given you some examples therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that's the first main clause humble what modifies that that he may exalt you at the proper time uh, casting all your anxiety on him uh, modifies what it means to humble yourself. And why cast? Because he, he cares for you. And then the, next, the second main clause, be of sober spirit. The third, be on the alert. The fourth, your adversary. Who's your adversary? The devil. You see how I have the devil underneath adversary indented three? Because it comes after uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. How's he prowl? Like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. How, res- how to resist him? Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. What brethren? Your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, you see this phrase comes first, and so I've put it over over top of the main clause, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perform, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory or be, be dominion rather forever and ever. Amen. And so I know that I have seven key thoughts in that passage. Out of all of the verses, there are seven main clauses. Now, what I don't want to imply with Scripture is something that has to be a main clause to be important. Because going back to the uh, verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, we believe that every word's inspired and the full Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So everything's inspired. But what I'm wanting to do with the passage in, in making my points that I'm going to come to you and teach... I I try to make sure the points, the main points that I'm sharing are based upon the main clauses. It would be rare probably that I would make a main point of a message based on a dependent clause. So I'm making my points based on main clauses you follow what I'm saying does that make sense pretty simple okay keep diagramming yeah see and in, in, in seminary and we even had to do it in Greek we had to do like three different kinds of diagramming of sentences and then you had to build your outline off of the diagram so yeah you can get you can get pretty detailed with it but again I just I read down through a passage in epistles and put in bold print and left justified all the main clauses. And then the dependent clauses, if the, that portion of the dependent clause comes before what it's modifying, I put it above. If it comes after what it's modifying, I put it below. And whatever word it's modifying in the main clause, I indent it three go three spaces and put it above if it's before or below if it's after. Does that make sense? Have I lost you? 
And when you get done with something like, like this, you, it will just help you to kind of see the flow of the passage and distinguish the main clauses from the dependent clauses. Have I lost you? Okay. <laughs> this is much easier than structural diagramming. Right. Yes. <laughs> all, all of this, though, is just still helping you with that observation stage. I'm going through and, and writing down everything that I can note about the passage. I'm diagramming it. And, and then in interpretation, I'll, we'll get into it tonight. But I think one thing you eventually want to do at some point after you've done your own studies is check your secondary sources. Your commentaries, because as I'll note in a minute, if you come away with an interpretation that nobody else has ever had, <laughs> what's that tell you? You're probably off in your interpretation. Okay, uh, let's keep going. I'm going to skip. We, we got in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save a lesson, the charting the passage. I gave you some of that in handouts the other week. But I'm going to save that to a later lesson because that can get pretty complicated and I want to keep moving tonight. I want us to move into interpretation. Uh, interpretation. After you've done observation, you get into interpretation. You know, King David prayed in Psalm 119.34, said, Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Acting on what God has said assumes that you understand what he has said. And that's why the second major step in Bible study is the step of interpretation. And remember, there's just the three main ones that I've said we're going to talk about. Observation, interpretation, and application. Okay? Interpretation is where you ask and answer the question, what does it mean can you think of an example in the book of Acts the first half of the book of Acts where one character got into interpretation with another character can you think of anybody And one fella had to walk another fella through what a passage meant. The Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been up to Jerusalem for a festival. While he was there, he bought a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. He's headed back to Ethiopia. And you remember what God said to Philip? I want you to go down to the desert road that leads to Gaza. Wasn't even the main road, the desert road. And it was at noon. Go to the desert road leading to Gaza. The secondary path, not even the main road. Go at noon out in the desert. God had an appointment for Philip. 
And while he was there, lo and behold, it's probably a surprise to him that he meets up with another traveler on that road. It's the Ethiopian eunuch. And lo and behold, what's the guy reading? Isaiah 53. And what's Philip asking him? Do you understand what you're reading? He says, no, how can I unless somebody shows me? Would you like me to show you? Yeah. And he gets up in the chariot with him. And Philip takes Isaiah 53 and from that passage preaches Jesus to him. He explains what the passage means. Remember a question he asked? Who's the writer talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about somebody else? So again, he explained to the man. And when the man understood it, he was able to respond in faith. And then verse 39 says he went home rejoicing. So in a sense, this, this step here of interpretation and getting interpretation right helped open up the entire continent of Africa to the gospel. Because this unit went back to Ethiopia and from there the church tradition on what this guy became in Africa is pretty rich and how he helped spread the gospel over Africa. Now, what do we mean by interpretation? First of all, let me say that every book of the Bible has a message and that message can be understood. Do you ever wonder sometimes whether the Bible is just a giant riddle? Now, God didn't intend for it to be a riddle. He intends for it to be revelation. God's not playing a hide-and-seek game. He's more interested in you and I understanding the Bible than we are interested in understanding the Bible. How is it that two different students can look at the same verse or the same passage and come up with two entirely different meanings? In fact, sometimes people will come up with opposing and contradictory interpretations. Are they both right? No. I know what you're getting at and I'll explain that in a moment. Because uh, you're, you're talking about application, and you've got a good point there. But as far as what it means, can both be right? No, because Scripture says what it says means what it means. Now, we may apply it in different ways in our lives. One passage may apply in my life, speak to me a little differently than it does to you, does that mean it means two different, has two different meanings? No. Just through what we're going through in life, our life situation, whatever, that passage might speak to me differently. But it doesn't mean one thing for me and something else for you and something else for you and something else for you. It means what it it means what it means. It says what it says and means what it means. Unfortunately, many people today have decided that the laws of logic don't apply to Scripture. And that's sad. Uh, for them, everything's purely subjective. But folks, if we are doing solid interpretation, we will come up with the same basic meaning of the text. Now, when you're talking about interpretation, what's the word for interpretation? Did anybody have Bible class in college or something? What, what's the word for interpretation? Hermeneutics. I'm sorry, Ed. <laughs> Hermeneutics. 
This is the technical word that refers to interpreting Scripture. What? Ed, I'm sorry, you were saying something. Amen, brother. Yes. (laughs) Have I arrived at what the writer meant? Now, I spent a little bit of time here. It always drives me crazy when I hear people talk about in in a small group setting. You know, they'll say, what's this passage? What do you think it means? 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 And they come away from there with seven different meanings. No, there's one meaning of the text. Maybe seven different applications. You what? Yes. Meaning is not our subjective thoughts read into the text, but God's objective truth read out of the text interpretation is sort of the recreation process we're attempting to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience to think as he thought to feel as he felt to decide as he decided We're asking, what did he mean by this? What was he communicating? And we need to ask that before we get around to asking, what does it mean to me? Interpretation always begins with good observation. That's why... We started with observation first. Because interpretation is going to flow out of observation. Observation is like doing excavation. Interpretation is like doing the building or the erecting. Observation is like the foundation. Buildings are always determined by their foundations. And the more substantial the foundation, the more substantial the structure. Also, let me say, the quality of your interpretation will always depend on the quality of your observation. And this is why I've been saying the previous two weeks, don't get in a hurry with your Bible study, that observation stage. Take time with the biblical text. It also means that observation is never an end in and of itself. You do observation so you can discover the meaning of the text. You're trying to discover the meaning of the text so you can then apply it to your life and be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. So again, the better your observation, the better your interpretation. The more haphazard and careless your observation is, the less accurate your interpretation will be. Now, why do we even need interpretation? In your notes, write down first of all, time and distance and culture has separated us from King David or Moses or Paul. Time and distance and culture has separated us. From the biblical writer. Secondly, I want you to write down. There are language barriers. Here's where reading the Bible in several different translations can help immensely. 
Because in different translations, you're, you're seeing how different translation committees have grappled with a verse. And, and it's kind of like a window into their process. It's, it, it's, it's, like a, it's essentially like a commentary. Because I see how the NIV translators interpreted this word. I see how the NAS, ESV, the NLT, so forth and so on. Cultural barriers. This is where commentaries can help because they can explain things about the customs of the day that otherwise you and I wouldn't know about. Language barriers, cultural barriers... Also, we have to weed through communication barriers, encoding and decoding. For example, your wife may have asked you to fill up her car with gas. Let's say you forget. On her way to church tonight, you say, honey, while you're out, go ahead and get some gas. What did you mean? You meant, honey, I forgot. So can you take care of this? What might she hear you say? Get it yourself. I didn't want to take time. Communication barriers. Let's talk about some hazards to avoid. Hazard number one, misreading the text. Misreading the text. If we misread the text, we will misinterpret. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, if I was careless with that verse, what might I say that that verse says? Money's evil. Money's evil. No, text didn't say that. It said the love of money is. Another example, when King David said, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If I simply read, he will give me the desires of my heart, I'm in serious trouble. Because I've ignored the first part of it. Which is first what? Delight yourself in the Lord. So a lot of people are careless with their reading. And if you're careless with your reading, that's going to, that's going to lead to faulty hermeneutics. Secondly, a hazard to avoid, distorting the text. Distorting the text. Cults are famous for this. Just a quick example to show you how they distort. Thetos. In Colossians 2.9. That Jesus Christ is very God of very God. With no manuscript evidence for doing so, the JWs in their New World Translation will insert an I in that. They eat us. That Jesus was a man with some God-like characteristics. The biblical text says he is very God of very God. But again, that doesn't fit their theology. So they cut that out and paste in their own word. No justification for doing so. There, there is not a single variant reading anywhere. Where this is changed to this and this is given as a possibility. 
There's not a single variant reading that's ever been discovered that does this. And yet they do this. Distorting the text. Just outright distortion of the text. A third way, or a third hazard, over-spiritualizing the text. Now, let let me give an example of what I mean there. Let's say you're talking to somebody who spiritualizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You go down here to UNCC... And there's a professor down there who's famous the world over uh, for being a skeptic. And he still goes to Jerusalem. He's thinking he's going to find the body of Jesus, the the bones of Jesus in a dig. Uh, You talk to him about the resurrection. Oh yeah, he believes in the resurrection. But now what, what does he mean by that? Okay, that would be an application. But, but what does he... I'll just tell you what he meant. He denies the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. That, that Jesus, his spirit and soul was raised, but he would deny that there's such a thing as a bodily resurrection. Okay, He will look at it in just spiritualized terms only. That's what I mean. Uh, a fourth hazard would be subjectivism. Here's a big no-no. Many Christians are nothing more than mystics when they come to their Bible reading. They don't put any serious study into into the Bible. They just want to subjectively read their Bible to see how it strikes them. And, And when they come across a verse they like, they grab a hold of it without considering the context or anything. I think it was Adrian Rogers who used to call it the liver quiver. You're just reading to get the liver quiver. Never mind what the context is. Never mind what it really means or not. You're just reading something and how does it strike me at the moment? Yeah. (laughs) Yep. A a fifth and last one I'm going to give you tonight before we move on to the insights on interpretation. uh, A fifth hazard, presuppositions. This is where you think, oh, I I know already what that passage says. I don't even need to study it. But then once you study it, you're like, wow. I didn't realize there was so much in that passage. This is a big problem in churches. People just assume that, you know, oh, I don't need to read that book in the Bible. I don't need to study that book or study that passage. I already know what it means. Okay, some insights. I want to give you all five or six of these. Ask yourself, what type of literature is this? We're dealing with questions here of genre. Genre. Is this historical narrative? If you're studying 1 Samuel, for example, what's 1 Samuel? Historical narrative. And through the book of 1 Samuel, you're going to be learning how God put down the house of Eli because of corruption and raised up Samuel to be the judge and prophet over Israel. And you're going to be tracing how God prepared Samuel, how he had him go and anoint uh, Israel's first king. And first Samuel tells the story about how we 
come upon King David, God's plans with King David. And so what does historical narrative do? It tells a story. It's like reading a biography. You're looking to see how God works in people's lives. Secondly, there's wisdom literature. Not only historical narrative, wisdom literature and poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, those books. Common sense wisdom. There's parables. If I'm studying a parable, I see that it is a story that Jesus told to make a point. Usually there's one main point. Folks, every detail in the story doesn't mean something. Um, In the interpretation of parables leading all the way up to 1888-1889... Uh, The church fathers, the church fathers being those who were right after the time of the apostles. What reigned supreme in parable interpretation was the allegorical method. To where every little thing and every little parable meant something. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The inn was the church. The innkeepers, the apostle Paul. The oil and the wine he poured into the guy's wounds was law and gospel. And, and uh, I just, I mean, they went off out of bounds with interpretation. Uh, that's not how we interpret parables. From the most point, a parable gives a single point of comparison. There's details in the story. Every story has trappings in it and so forth. But we don't mean every, we don't mean for every detail in a parable to stand on all fours and walk around. Then there's prophetic. That's a fourth kind of literature. A fifth would be apocalyptic. A sixth. would be epistle. I always do this to myself every week. I start running out of time and get in a hurry. Seventh would be didactic type literature. Um, James is an epistle, but it's very didactic at the same time. It's very high on the teaching quality. So again, what genre, what genre is it? Secondly, ask, what's the context? Do you remember the old spiritual? The knee bone's connected to the thigh bone. The thigh bone's connected to the hip bone. The hip bone's connected to the tailbone. The, now, now hear the word of the Lord. Do you remember that song? What's that song saying when it comes to Bible study? Context matters. I talked about Adrian Rogers a while ago. He used to say that a text without a context is but a pretext. Context matters. Pay attention to what comes before, what comes after the passage I'm studying. You've probably heard the funny story before about Judas Iscariot, right? Somebody was talking about Judas Iscariot and how his life ended. Um, how, how did it end? He went out and hung himself. And then somebody's teaching that and they say, hear the word of the Lord. They pick something else out and they immediately go into a different passage. Go thou and do likewise. They've conflated verses that don't even belong together. We have to pay attention 
two contexts. So genre, context. Number three, I'm going to admonish you to say, take advantage of consultation. And what's consultation? What we talked about two weeks ago, some of those resources I encouraged you to go out and buy. Folks, the truth of the matter is there are people who have given their lives to studying the Bible in more detail than the average person. They've gone to school. They've studied all about history and backgrounds of the Bible and archaeology and different language, Bible languages. and uh, They've studied all of that stuff. You know, we value teachers in the church. And these writers, these commentaries, they're teachers who have simply put their instruction in print form. Why would we not want to take advantage of them? I don't want to be so arrogant that I say I don't need anybody else to teach me. And again, consultation, if, you're, if you come to a conclusion that nobody else is coming to, you might want to check some of these resources because you've probably you've taken a left turn somewhere and gone off on your own. A fourth principle here, too, uh, is that Scripture will never contradict Scripture. Scripture may enlarge upon an earlier thought. It'll give you more meat to chew on. But if you've come up with an interpretation that directly contradicts other portions of Scripture, you need to go back to the drawing board. You've messed up somewhere in in your observation. Number five, always seek the full counsel of the Word of God. Don't just call up one verse and build an entire doctrine or theology around one verse. So if you are going to study sanctification in the Bible, for instance... Uh, you could start with observation and, and go back to your exhaustive concordance for places where sanctification is used and study all of those passages uh, anywhere in the Bible that talks about that. So you're understanding what the overall witness of the Bible is. Sixth. Always, well, let me say generally because I'll, I'll give you the, the exceptions here. But generally interpret scripture literally. Unless you have an indication in the text that it's not to be taken literally, then read it at face value. Read it at face value. Folks, the Bible is not a book of mysticism. God spoke that we might know His truth. And so as you read, read the Bible in its natural, normal sense as you would other writings. Don't go looking for for secret, hidden meanings in a text that may not be there at all. As one person has put it, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. You know, when we we depart from literal interpretation of the Word of God, then interpretation just becomes a free-for-all. It just becomes anything you want it to mean. And that's going to be disastrous in the church. I'm sorry? 
Exactly. That's a great example. The book of Genesis. If you don't interpret it at face value, what's going to be the end of it? If we just go any direction, there's no end in sight to that. Again, obviously there are figures of speech. and th- You know, if the Bible says Jesus is the door into the sheepfold, nobody is thinking he's a two-by-four with hinges on it. We know, what, we know what that figure of speech means. Um, but anyway. You get into apocalyptic literature like Revelation. What's, what's John say? Revelation 1.1 John says, I am going to communicate to you in symbols. Now, folks, interpreting symbols symbolically is literal in that case. So, again, you interpret figures of speech according to the normal mode of interpretation of that figure of speech. You understand what I'm saying? I could give you some examples in Revelation. I'd get in trouble with some of you. Where people think they can interpret something literally. And and they can't. You want me to give you an illustration? Make 33% of you angry as you go out of here tonight. You want me to... (laughs) My wife's... (laughs) Say what? (laughs) Who's the 144,000 in Revelation 7? (laughs) Huh? Who's the 144,000? The 12,000 of each tribe. Now, 75% of Bible preachers on the radio in America are going to tell you who the 144,000 are. They're going to tell you it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that saved during the tribulation. But DA Car- like scholars like D.A. Carson, Greg Bill, tell you it can't be that. Here's why. What happened in 70 A.D.? The destruction of the temple. What happened with the destruction of the temple? All of the records of tribes were destroyed. Since 70 A.D., Jews don't know what their pedigree is as far as their tribe. They don't know. And they'll say, yes, but God knows. But here's the problem with that, as Carson points out. Here's the problem with that. Because man doesn't know what has man done through the years. They have intermingled to where today there is no such thing as tribal purity. And as D.A. Carson says, God doesn't undo history. There is no such thing as tribal purity today. And so as Carson would say, you keep reading in that passage, the very next verses talk about all of the people of God. The universal people of God. All of those who are in Christ. That's who the 144,000 are. You what? (laughs) I'm just saying, that's a case where the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes... The following verses, and it's interpreted symbolically, not literally. It can't be interpreted literally. There's no way. So, yes, in, in apocalyptic literature, there are things that are symbolic. But, unless it's something like that, you read and interpret at face value. Yes, it's not 490 times. Jesus was just saying 
unlimited. You don't, you don't have an accountant's mentality. A, a seventh. <laughs> i got to give you two more here real quick, and then we've got to close. Never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Can I say that one again emphatically? Never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. I'm going to give you an example here. Okay? All through the New Testament, whether you're in the book of Romans, whether you're in 1 Peter, whether you're in the Gospel of John, there's all kinds of passages throughout the New Testament that tell us very plainly about the security of the believer. Clear passages. One of the most disputed passages in the entire New Testament is Hebrews 6. Can a real believer fall away from grace or not? And of course we would say no. A real believer cannot lose his or her salvation. But Hebrews 6 is a very complicated text. There are people who will take Hebrews 6 and try to interpret Romans 8 by Hebrews 6. You've got to let clear passages shed light on obscure passages. And then one more point here. Allow the Old Testament to be clarified by the New Testament. The New Testament may point out that an Old Testament practice is now obsolete. Do you and I bring lambs to church every week to be sacrificed? No. Why? Because of Jesus. So there are New Testament passages that will clarify that that Old Testament practice is now obsolete. So those are eight things, eight items that I want you to keep in mind uh, as you interpret. Eight insights on interpretation. Well, we will pick up where I left off tonight next week.